Welcome to City of God, a podcast at the Center for Public Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Dr. Owen Strand, and I'll be your host. Join us each week as we engage the city of man with the biblical wisdom of the city of God. Welcome to City of God. This is the 2020-21 edition, the very first episode. It's a joy to be back with you. We know we have a bunch of subscribers who have been, at least in some form, waiting for an episode. So thank you for your ongoing patronage and subscription to City of God. Uh, it's a thrill to see our numbers growing, uh, subscribers proliferating out there. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm very thankful for the opportunity to have my assistant, Mike Dixon, in the studio with me. Mike, welcome back to you. Yeah, it's great to be here. Uh, it was a, a long break. I'm ready to be back in the podcasting game here. We're, we're in the batting cages, everybody. We got our batting gloves on. You know, we got our helmets on here. And we are going to dive into an area of public theology that not only is being talked about right now, but is actually in headlines and is a national matter, even a global matter. We're going to talk about what it means to submit to government, in particular, let's say, secular government as a Christian. Uh, there, there's a great deal of debate. Actually, I, I would like to reframe that. There's a lot of heat out there about what it means to be a Christian in submission to government. There's kind of a, a dichotomy that is emerging on this subject where you're either a Christian who cites Romans 13 and talks about submission to government, or you're a Christian who cites abuses of power uh, for example, in this context in 2020, as we head into the fall, late summer here, and that tends to get your dander up and you're, you're peaked. What we're going to do in this episode in rapid fire fashion is we're going to survey some passages, Old and New Testament, and we're going to try to put together texts in service of what we call exegetical theology. So Mike and I are going to do that, as I say, at a good clip here. And uh, we, we pray that what comes out of this discussion is not so much us entering into one side or another uh, of a vigorous conversation, though that's not necessarily a bad thing. We're not scared of that. We're actually trying to go a little bit before that, though, and think biblically and principially in order to say, look, there's a good deal of texture and some ebb and flow on this issue more than we might initially think. So, Mike, are you, do you have your batting? Did you, did you have batting gloves? Absolutely. I, when I played baseball, it was all about the accessories. I think the best part about little league baseball, and I'm not exaggerating, was the batting gloves. I can remember picking them out mm -hmm. and it being this like shining moment of having arrived that I had my own set oh, yeah. of batting gloves. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I came of age in the time of Jeter when he would step out and readjust the batting gloves. Oh, and yeah. That was just the dream, was to look as cool as Ken Griffey Jr., Derek Jeter, all of those guys. So absolutely, I had the batting gloves. I, I Just before we dive in, um, I have to actually uh, apologize to my listeners because we just had a Yankees reference there, but I will, <laughs> I will rapidly correct it. Um, with the Nomar Garcia Parra reference, because he would also... He was also very meticulous uh -huh. in a Jeter-like way about yep. his batting gloves, and um, the Red Sox are not evil. <laughs> All right, well, we could actually switch and pivot to batting gloves and baseball, but we're not going to do that. Mike, where do you think we should head as we begin this conversation? Yeah, I think we should start with Daniel, um, the, the most, one of the most popular stories of the Old Testament, 
little did we know, it, it really gets into the idea of public theology and submission to government and the idea of sphere sovereignty and all of these theological issues. You don't see that in the, uh, the children's Bibles when they're discussing Daniel. Um, so I'm going to take us to Daniel 1.8, mm. um, which is early in the story, uh, early in the book. And that verse says, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. This was after the king had um, put forth an edict to eat certain types of food for um, some of the people who had come into exile. Um, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. That's Daniel 1.8. Wow. We have already, we've already dived into the deep end of the pool. And of course, in starting with Daniel, we recognize we could go back further. That's a danger for any theologian, teacher of God's word. You, you all can think of a pastor who can never quite get to his actual passage <laughs> for the day because he feels the need to keep going back and back for mm-hmm. the context, which I get, which I affirm. What we have to know is that Israel's the covenant people of God, but at this portion uh, of the Old Testament, that has all fallen to ash, and now the people of God have been carried into Babylon, including Daniel. And now Daniel uh, not only has a pagan name assigned to him, as do his friends, but now he is being told that he needs to eat Babylonian food. This is a really interesting passage, Mike, because Daniel here, I don't think, is necessarily sinning by eating Babylonian food, and yet he puts himself out on the line and says, I want to eat my own food, and actually, if I do so, I think you're going to see that God will bless this, and God does indeed, in the broader context of Daniel 1, bless Daniel for this decision. Why is this significant then? This is significant because here is a follower of God, admittedly in an old covenant context, so we note that. That's important. And yet it's, it's the whole Bible that we're considering, who is deciding on a matter where there is some play that he is not going to go the way that the government, the ruling authority, the emperor, has assigned to him. He's, he's going to go his own way. So what I'm not saying is that Daniel is, is expressly breaking governmental edict. It's not exactly what's happening here. On the other hand, we just need to have this in our tool belt when we're thinking through the vexing question of submission to authority. This is an example of a faithful follower of God who sets up the situation in a way that is not initially how the governing authority set it up. Right. That's important. I think we even see um, there in the second half of the verse, um, therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. The first thing he did was not start throwing out hot takes, whatever his version of Twitter might have been in that day. Mm -hmm. Um, But he goes to the governmental authority and asks. Um, And Daniel was a man of of, of charity and love. And we we see that um, engaging with the government uh, out of love. The second, the second passage, uh, we're going to hop to the New Testament here into Acts 5 in the middle of a very interesting story in the early church where um, some of the apostles have been imprisoned. And we're going to hop into Acts 5, 27 through 29. Um, and when they had brought them, that's when they had brought the, the, the apostles, they set them before the council. That's the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the high priest questioned them, saying, 
we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, that is the name of Christ. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And here's the key. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. And that's where this whole story hinges. They want to shun them to silence. But Peter says, we must obey God rather than men. A hugely important passage for forming a proper public theology, an understanding of how the church is the church in a fallen world under fallen government even. In this passage, we see that actually there is something that comes before submission to government. The language is not directly used in Acts 5.29, but the principle is what we call the lordship of Christ over the church. So in other words, yes, we are subject to authorities, as we're going to see in just a minute, from uh, different biblical passages. That's very important. We're not downplaying that. We're not pitting the Bible against itself either. But what you have to do informing doctrines of the faith from the scripture, doing what we call exegetical theology unto systematic theology, is you have to let each text have its witness. You have to call it effectively to the stand. This passage shows us that the lordship of Christ is a real principle. We must obey God rather than men. That's what the lordship of Christ means. It means that your first and foremost authority is not Caesar in any form, whether local or national. Your first and foremost authority as a believer is God, God in Christ, God being the one, the Father being the one who has put Christ forward as the Alpha and the Omega. So the apostles are modeling for us a vital principle of Christian faith that when the government says, don't do something God has said to do, In other words, sin against God by not obeying him, the Christian says, I can't follow you. I have to obey God rather than men. This helps us understand then, in a broader sense, what submission in the New Testament means. Submission in the context of government or in the context of marriage uh, or even in the context of fatherhood or motherhood. In other words, if a child is told to sin by a father or mother, you're actually not supposed to follow that God-constituted authority in that moment. If a husband seeks to lead his wife into sin, as a Christian, she honors God by obeying God rather than that husband. And for our most direct purposes here, Christians, when the state uh, directs them to sin, uh, they, they have to say, I, I can't follow you. Uh, and, and in doing so, they're not being a rabble-rouser. They're, they're not doing so in a spirit of worldly defiance. They're actually very self-controlled. They're speaking the truth in love. And they're, they're seizing this moment not simply as a moment of truth, of conscience, which it is, but they're also seizing it as a moment of witness. When you say, in whatever form, we must obey God rather than men, when you act on the principle of the Lordship of Christ, please hear me very clearly you are displaying a Christian witness to the world. Hopefully, you have a full-fledged opportunity to share the gospel in that mm-hmm. moment. But, but what I'm actually saying is something a little more fine and subtle. Just, just laying down that principle distinguishes you from unbelievers in a really meaningful way. Absolutely. We have, we have ordered authorities God has, that, that are all under God's sovereignty that he has put in place, and we 
We pray that all of the authorities that he has placed, whether that's in the family, whether that's in the church, whether that is uh, in the state, we pray that those are all honoring to God and that we can follow them without sin, uh, without violating our conscience. But there will be times when we have to go up the chain in those ordered authorities to follow God rather than men. Yeah, and we, we want to be careful here um, because we, I, I don't want people to hear me as saying, jump to the exceptions in the rule. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. happens a lot of times with the conversation over the, the God-honoring submission of a wife to her husband. People will, will effectively allow the whole conversation to then become about exceptions to the rule. We don't want to do that on, in that subject. Or in this matter of government, we want to make clear that we're, we're lined out with the principle of submission to government, which we're just about to talk about. However, we do also have to very much recognize passages like Acts 5 that show us that governmental authority is not absolute. Mm. And, and let me refine this even. It's not just like you have Caesar right alongside Christ. Mm-hmm. Christ outranks Caesar by, actually, let me check this. I'm checking my notes right now. (laughs) An infinite ontological gap. There is an infinite ontological gap between the lordship of Jesus Christ over his blood-bought people and the authority of Caesar. Doesn't doesn't render Caesar's authority nothing, but it does situate things, I think, in a way that we very much need to recognize at the outset. Absolutely. And that takes us to Romans 13, which will be our next passage here. Uh, I'll read verses 1 and 2. Again, this is the latter part of Paul's letter to the Romans. And he says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment on a first reading that can sometimes seem uh, hard to swallow when you've just read Acts 5. So let's, mm-hmm. let's parse this out. What, what is Paul getting at here um, as he says, um, if you resist the government that God has appointed, you are resisting God himself and, and incurring judgment on yourself. Yes, well said. Handle with care here. What, what we are supposed to do, I think, at this point is think that wherever we can— we are submissive to governing authorities. Mm. So for the, the Christian, again, building this case as we go, we're not yet at the level of synthesis, but we're getting there. The Christian does everything he can to obey local, state, national authority in an American sense, or mm-hmm. adapt this to your context. We know we have listeners who are very much beyond America, and praise God for that. You think of the persecuted church with, with a passage like this, and you recognize that in contradistinction to what we have in America, a lot of believers don't have much political agency at all, and they are in a situation where they really do have to live out a passage like this in a way that would shock, frankly, mm-hmm. a lot of American Christians. And we want to hear that witness. That shouldn't overwhelm other considerations in our thinking in a rich public theology that like the one that we're trying to build here briefly and yet it needs to it needs to matter christians here again have a moment of witness before us frequently all over the place when we obey laws great and small uh, when an edict is handed down it's not one that causes us to sin 
or that takes biblical principles off the table. And so in those situations, again, we have that opportunity to display a uniquely submissive attitude to the government. Now, you can hear (laughs) chorus is developing as you build these points, because some people are going to say, well, that's not the only way we are a witness as believers. No, it's not. But this is a vital part of Christian engagement with the public square. The governor, the ruling authority in verse 4, is God's servant for your good. Mm. He is the servant of God. He's an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. This passage in Romans 13, transitioning as Paul's thought flows more into a consideration of capital punishment here, actually, and, and uh, you know the government policing crime more broadly. That's another matter uh, to think through here that's relevant very much for America in fall mm-hmm. and late summer 2020. Look, we, we do not look at whatever ordered authority we have, police, um, you know, those who protect us, those who enforce laws, judges. We don't look at those things as neutral or unimportant. We look at those institutions as of great importance to us. Do we look at them and think, oh, well, they're unblemishedly pure? Mm. No, we don't. We have to incorporate the doctrine of the fall here the doctrine of original sin into all these considerations. Yet, Christians have a rich doctrine of the state from passages like this that causes us not simply to recognize government as ordered authority, not simply to engage in the body politic as much as we can, but actually to see governmental authority as derived from God himself. God put it there, and it's not an incidental fact. God wants it there. Absolutely, absolutely. And and as we as we think about submission to a God given uh, government, um, and not resisting that insofar as we can help it, um, and to live peaceably with all, we think about the idea of citizenship that is is very clear in in the life of Paul. We see it in the letter uh, to the Philippians. He talks about his citizenship. We also see it in Acts twenty two, which is kind of our our next passage. Um, and, and Paul is under arrest and he's about to be whipped. Um, and when they're about to whip him here in Acts 22, 25 through 29, he says to the centurion, is it lawful, lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, uh, what are you about to do for this man is a Roman citizen? So the idea of, of, of citizenship coming to, to the fore and, and Paul putting himself under the law uh, of, of Rome here and even invoking the law of Rome. This is such a fascinating passage for this discussion, and I almost never hear it referenced. It's buried in the later chapters of Acts when evangelicals, when Baptists tend to preach from Acts and focus on Acts. They tend to focus on the explosion of the gospel in in this book, and that's mm-hmm. very right. <laughs> that is a major emphasis of the book of Acts. But that's not all that is in Acts. The, the more you dive into the warp and woof of Scripture, the more you find these gems that are buried there that, frankly, in some strange and unexpected ways, speak to conversations, speak to doctrinal matters you're not necessarily expecting to find in that given passage of Scripture. This is one of those. Mm. Acts is not just a about Paul's missionary journeys in this latter part of the book. It is that. That's the context of this passage. And yet, 
what does Paul do here? Oh, Paul does something very interesting. Rome has a very strong understanding of citizenship. Rome is a pagan institution. It's a pagan nation, if you will. Mm. Rome is not governed explicitly or otherwise by biblical principles. Paul is captured as a slave of Christ, right, spiritually. And yet, what does Paul do here? He draws on the pagan category of Roman citizenship. Now, by that, I'm not meaning to indicate that because Rome has an understanding of citizenship that isn't directly Christian, it's wrong. I'm simply trying to say this. Paul uses the apparatus of the state in order to not die. That's a pretty significant thing, isn't it? It pushes us away from thinking that as a Christian, in a related matter, if somebody wants to kill you because you're in some form offering a Christian witness, you should just naturally assume immediately, well, this is it. Mm. That's it. I guess I'm just supposed to be a martyr right now. When you and I should be a martyr is not an easy issue to settle, but this complicates the picture. Secondly, Paul does not allow himself to be flogged and abused. He draws on his Roman citizenship. Okay, let me apply this then briefly to the 21st century. We are not wrong, I think, by extension to draw on our citizenship as Christians in a context, this is a coronavirus pandemic context at present, where some of our constitutional rights, at the very least, are challenged. Not every Christian is facing a challenge in the same way, and yet some Christians in some places are facing challenges, I think, to the First Amendment right of worship, as it's sometimes called, the freedom to worship God, which is actually technically a negative right. It's Mm -hmm. not a positive right granted. It's a negative right that the government is simply recognizing. If a pastor first makes a biblical case then for Christian citizenship and the church being essential, let's say, but then goes on to make a constitutional case in some form, I think they're being Pauline. Mm. At at least potentially they are, if it's a rich and thoughtful case, in a directly Acts 22 way, because they're calling on the apparatus of the state in their defense. They're using the machinery politically that is available to them to keep preaching the gospel Mm. in order to ultimately obey Christ, to make good on the lordship of Christ. But also note this. This is such a textured passage. Paul is also submitting to authority in doing this. Mm. So so you would be wrong, I think, to read this as Paul in a kind of brash moment um, cashing in his citizenship check. He's not doing that. He is working within the apparatus of the state. Absolutely. And and it's important now, it's important for us in, in the U.S. to have a good working knowledge of our rights as um, worshipers, uh, our rights as, as citizens to invoke those things. It's important for those of you who might be considering a call to missions. If you're thinking about going overseas, familiarize yourself with what rights you will have in whatever country you're going to. They may be less, they may be more. Um, mm-hmm. But know those things so that you can proclaim the gospel effectively so that you can have a good relationship with the government in that country 
so that you can be like Paul, even when times when your rights may be infringed in another country, you can draw on those things, familiarize yourself with that and your citizenship and, and know what you can do under the law so that you can live peaceably, hopefully, while being a tenacious preacher of the gospel. Yes, that's right. There's a sliding scale here, too, we want to admit. Paul isn't uh, invoking the priorities of citizenship because a fingernail was broken by somebody Mm. who was holding his arm. Um, So we want to think carefully about when we do call on uh, the rights of the state that are ours as a citizen, um, when we draw on the prerogatives of citizenship, and when we don't. And this isn't an easy one. Because technically, just about anybody who's martyred, uh, at least somebody who's martyred in a righteous way, for righteous reasons, is very much having their rights infringed. Mm -hmm. And I'm not trying to build a case here for those of you who are privy to some of the higher level discussions, discussions uh, fostered, for example, by thinkers like Oliver O'Donovan, who have very much questioned the idea of rights. I'm not trying to build uh, a fortress-grade case for rights. Americans talk a great deal about rights. The issue of rights is a major matter mm-hmm. to parse, think through theologically and biblically, and, and, and stew on, okay? But we are noting here that it is effectively the case that the Apostle Paul draws on the rights, I think you can at least make a case for that term here in Acts 22, of Roman citizenship, and that is what allows him to live longer, and that is what then allows him to write more epistles, thus uh, fulfilling God's plan for the formation of the New Testament canon, and that uh, prolongs his ability to strengthen the church. So, wow, another passage we need in the mix as we form an exegetical theology here of how the Christian lives under a secular state. Absolutely, and there are many more that we could have gone to uh, as we think about we think about First Peter, we think about First uh, Timothy, other passages in Acts, the life of Esther, the life of Joseph, all all of these things. And this is what exegetical theology is. And some at some point we've got to draw the line because we're doing a podcast. Um, if we were writing a, a four hundred page book, we'd include all of that, but. Um, we're going to draw the line there with the texts. We've covered, we've covered Daniel. We've covered uh, Paul's life, the early apostles, his epistles and Romans, um, and then his, his later life. Let's go to some principles. Yes. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Ahead. That was a, I threw the flag. Um, <laughs> just very quickly, Mike and I did include here as texts or passages that we could discuss. First, Peter 2.17, for example, where Peter says to honor the emperor. I would class that under the Romans mm-hmm. 13 comments that, that we were making earlier. I, I will also just note this earlier there in 1 Peter 2, verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. So a quick word to just double up on what we were talking about. Human institutions matter, not just expressly Christian ones. Uh, we are not those, therefore, who should have a posture of seeking to burn down institutions as an act of worship mm. wherever a Christian is, provided that authority is not acting in a sinful way, again, generally your posture is to be subject to that institution and even to see it as, as in some sense, good. Mm. At the very least, God constituted. We could also have talked about 
1 Timothy 2, 1 through 7, it is very clear there that Christians are supposed to pray for kings and all who are in high positions, 1 Timothy 2, 2, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Mike already mentioned that. Um, just a, just a, a word there. You should pray for your governing authorities, not because they're righteous, not because you agree with them, not because they're from your political party, but because God has called for that. That's a part of actually uh, recognizing God-ordained authority in the world God has made. So actually, submitting to the lordship of Christ means meaningful recognition of the God-ordained state Mm. insofar as that is possible. Absolutely. So now that we've done some what we call exegetical theology, we're going to try to close this podcast out by lining out some principles, um, some, some systematic thoughts on how we can live under government and, and what that looks like. The first principle we're going to talk about quickly is that, that we are under the lordship of Christ. We're under the lordship of Christ. What, is, what does that look like? What does this have to do with our um, submission to government? Well, Mike, this better be our first confession. This better be our first principle that we raise in these kind of tough uh, conversations. Mike, right now, there are a number of matters on the table in American evangelicalism with some leading lights, some well-known figures being involved on different sides of these debates and conversations. We have made a point in this podcast of not making this about leader A versus leader B and then entering in in a kind of food fight way. Mm -hmm. Okay, We're doing that intentionally. I'm guessing our listeners have picked up on that thus far. (laughs) Whatever you want to say, though, about submitting to government, you need to take great pains that you actually don't start with Romans 13. Don't you dare, honestly. You need to start with the Lordship of Christ. That is the ruling principle for the Christian living in the New Covenant era in a fallen world, not just for government or policy or the state. The Lordship of Christ is the fundamental reality, honestly, basically, of the Christian life. Uh, That's a strong statement, and yet I stand behind it. The Lordship of Christ is in back of everything. The Lordship of Christ grounds all Christian existence. The Lordship of Christ means in practical form that we don't have the freedom to work out for ourselves what our Christianity is going to look like, what our identity is supposed to to present itself. The Lordship of Christ means that we are a slave of Christ, and so we must obey God rather than men. Hmm. You have a king every day you live. You have a higher authority than any governor, than any mayor than any president, than any ruling authority. You follow Christ. Christ, by virtue of saving you, has claimed you, and no one can undo that. The government or different individuals in this world can try to oppose that. They can uh, do violence to you. They can even kill you. It matters not. You serve Christ. So make sure wherever you land on some of the tougher issues, and there are a bunch of tougher issues, masks, distancing policy, how many people can meet, when we can meet, can we meet, is the church essential, is it non-essential, all sorts of matters that are difficult to sort out. I'm so thankful there are godly pastors and elder boards 
uh, that are trying to handle these things well. There's not a one-size-fits-all policy that we are commending on this podcast right now on City of God for all those situations. Hear that loud and clear. Nonetheless, nonetheless, make sure that you as a pastor, as a team of elders, and your people know that you are under the Lordship of Christ. Amen. And that leads into our second one. We can see this, our second principle, we, we see this uh, in a couple of the passages we've brought up. So we're under the Lordship of Christ. Firstly, primarily in all of life, we stand, we walk, we talk under the banner of Lordship of Christ. Mm-hmm. Secondly, we're to submit to government. Not just the government that we agree with, but, <laughs> but we are to simply submit to government. We are, and actually we can connect the first and the second, as you already heard me do, if your ears are perked and the coffee is flowing as you listen here, as part of the Lordship of Christ, actually, you should submit to the government. It's not that these two things uh, must clash, uh, bonking heads like polar bears fighting in the Arctic North or something like this. Well, I've got the Lordship of Christ, and then I'm, I guess I'm just supposed to smash up, submit to government as part of that. No, 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 hold up, hold up. You're supposed to have the Lordship of Christ first, and then, as I said earlier, an infinite gap. This is quite a mental picture. And then you're supposed to have submit to government actually as the outworking of the Lordship of Christ as much as is possible. So Christians, our submission to government matters tremendously. God has appointed the state and not just the state that we want or we like as his instrument of authority, as part of the way that he expresses that this world is not pagan neutral, all is not one, all is not gender neutral sameness, all is not postmodern blankness. No, 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 no. This is an ordered world. God is our ultimate authority, and then God has set up authority in the world. He has made as part of this truth. We recognize as much as we can as Christians, we witness to the world by submitting to government. And your statement as much as we can, that leads us into our third point. So we have, we're under the Lordship of Christ. Second, we submit to the government. That's an outflowing of our walking in obedience to the Lordship of Christ. But sometimes, number three comes up, don't follow authorities into sin. Sometimes we will have to invoke this as we saw in some of our examples, our, our biblical examples. So number three, don't follow authorities into sin. Yeah, and here we're not saying uh, have this kind of obsessive interest in finding any way you can opt out of submission to authority. It's mm. not what we mean. It's not what we mean. Any kind of authority, whether that's in the home, husbandly headship, uh, whether that's in the church, submission to elders, very important, uh, children to father and mother, and as we're talking about here most directly, the Christian to the state. We want our posture to be one of submission. We're actually supposed to pray to bring in that First Timothy 2 passage that we would be maximally able to submit to the government, not necessarily Christian government, so that we can lead a quiet life. But when the authorities in a Daniel-like way uh, are pushing us into ungodly territory, we cannot follow them, and we should not. Let me make this practical for for just a minute here. In a country like ours, where we have the First Amendment, 
where we have freedom of worship, where churches are not supposed to be treated like businesses. Churches actually have a privileged role in society. That's an embattled reality today, Mm -hmm. legally. Uh, There are plenty of people today, sadly, who want to strike down that kind of positioning. And yet, that that is historical precedent. That's law. Okay, when that's in place, then we need to recognize that if the state uh, then does something, maybe not directly rebuking the First Amendment, but that downgrades the church out of that kind of privileged position, that puts Christians at least potentially in a situation where, okay, now if we're drawing off of the Acts 22 material, we're in a situation where we may need to make good on the machinery that is before us constitutionally and legally because the authorities are not allowing us to make good on the lordship of Christ, which for a believer is that which summons us to worship, and all of this is allowed by effectively the church being essential. Said more simply, If the church is downgraded to non-essential and abortion clinics and weed shops are essential, there are at least possible grounds, and I would go even further, there are solid grounds for Christians raising their voice and potentially challenging the government on that point. That's a kind of practical enfleshing of what we're talking about here with number three. Absolutely. And and we don't want to we don't want to extend this to the point where we're looking for every little proof text to see what laws we can get out of as Christians. That's, that's not what we want. We're talking about when the government is leading or the authorities are leading into sin, such as neglecting the gathering, such as even maybe forced abortions. We see that around the world right now. We, yes. we don't want to ever be participants in that that would be sinful. Yes, um, we must not be. Absolutely, absolutely. We must not. Right, and that's that, exactly right. That would be the time for what we see: civil disobedience. We we even have biblical examples of civil disobedience that we didn't really get to get into a whole lot, besides Paul. But Daniel is is a good case study in civil disobedience. If you want to know how to lovingly do that and even keep a good reputation in the state, go read the first half of Daniel um, with with the the three Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and then Daniel himself refusing to bow the knee and, and pray there. That's well said. Joseph, Esther, Daniel, those are three places that Christians need to go. I would encourage you listening to this podcast, think about reading through those examples in your devotions. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're a pastor, I would encourage you to consider tackling these kind of matters, perhaps in a sermon series this fall. Uh, we're not calling for some sort of hot-headed pulpit mm-hmm. response on this podcast. That's not what I mean. I mean, principially, can you help your people think through, for example, some of these major Old Testament examples that give us that give us a lot of context and help? No, they don't resolve every tricky issue before us today. They don't. But they do at least definitely inform where we are. Absolutely. So our, our three principles, we're under the lordship of Christ. We submit to government, but then we don't follow the authorities into sin. And, and th- again, the goal in this is that we can live a, 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 a peaceful and quiet life where the gospel is, is quick on our lips and, and is, is, is to be shared with, with those around us. Those are, those are our three principles that we, we gather from all of these texts that we've been reading and, and much more. That's right. Now, we're going to close with this. There's one last matter that I need to just put on the table here for us to think about. What about when authorities take away what the Bible grants? 
or seems to support. Mike was referencing this a minute ago. Let's switch the let's switch the matter. What if Christians, let's say as missionaries, believe that they should be able to homeschool their children, but now or in coming days the government says you cannot mm. because you fundamentalist Christians are indoctrinating your your children in a terrible way. Okay, that's an example, friends, of just how tricky and gray this conversation can get, because that is not an example necessarily of the government asking you to sin. It's pretty close, I would say, to where Daniel 1 is, though, in that the government's policy may well, it could could lead to sin for you or your children, and it may just be spiritually unhealthy for your children. What do you do then? See, friends, as I wrap up here, that's how we, we see that we need to recognize that our only consideration for not following the government is not simply, oh, is the government making you sin? Is, is the government making you sin? We, we have a second question that we have, have to at least think through. Is the government taking away something that the Bible commends? That's different than is the Bible asking you to sin. But honestly, I don't hear people raising this point at all. Mm. It's a valid question. It's not an easy one to handle. I would I will put myself on record here and say if the government took away my right to homeschool I would not necessarily submit to that. I might well in a legal way, constitutional way, political way try to oppose that. We're going to have to wrap up on that point. I thank Mike Dixon for joining me on this first 2020-21 episode of City of God. It's been a it's been a really fun conversation for me. We trust it has been for you. There are many gray areas. As we close, please know that we recognize that Christians are trying to handle these different biblical teachings well. Remember not to pit the Bible against itself. Uh, also remember that, yes, there are different texts that give a different witness uh, that has to be incorporated together. In all of this, we pray that this exegetical theology exercise leading into systematic theology that is a doctrine of Christian engagement with the state will bless you and will strengthen you and will help you to stand in a world that is very much shaken in our time. God bless you. Thanks for listening to City of God, a podcast at the Center for Public Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. We're so thankful you stopped by. We encourage you to continue to join the conversation at cpt.mbts.edu, the official website of the center. And we encourage you to follow us on Twitter and Facebook as well. Join us in coming days as we continue the conversation on what it means to be the city of God in the city of man.